Join with me in prayer. Heavenly God, you give us this day of Sabbath not only to honor you, not only to follow your commandments, not only to increase the power of our witness to who you are in the world, but also to cease our running, to cease our emotions so that we may hear from you. We ask that you speak to our hearts, you speak to our mind, that you speak to our spirits as your word is proclaimed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our New Testament reading this morning, our Old Testament reading this morning, begins with Psalm 92, and shortly is just verses 1 through 4. Let's listen together for the word of our Lord. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. This is the word of the Lord. This summer, we are looking at the fourth commandment, what it is to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The fourth commandment is the one that gets the longest amount of explication in the Ten Commandments by far. It's exhorted 150 times in Scripture. That's, that's more than the other nine commandments combined actually get explicit exhortation. It is one of the key points of contention time and again in Jesus' earthly ministry. And yet in our day and time, it feels like dusting off this old relic. Like, oh yeah, Sabbath, rest. And it is my hope that week by week we see there, there is actual a real relevance, even urgency, to recovering the gift of the Sabbath, and most truly, not just the, the, the day per se, but in fact, the God who is known in and through the day. Today, we are looking at Sabbath in relationship. Well, two weeks ago, we did Sabbath and grace. Um, we have looked at Sabbath and time last week. Today, it's Sabbath and joy. Next week, Sabbath and work. <clears throat> to get at that, we will look at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God, and when Abithar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many times have you seen where a couple, they get engaged and everyone's surrounding them, congratulating them, asking them to tell the story. Where did it happen? When did it happen? Was it a surprise? 
And how often have you, have you seen during that moment someone ask, so, so when's the big day? And have you ever watched when the couple sometimes hesitates at that point? Not, not sure yet. Not yet set. We're going to get that on the calendar soon. And, and you could take the hesitation as, well, the couple just, they don't know their plans yet. And that's probably true. They really don't know. But over the years of doing weddings, I've come to believe that I think sometimes that moment of hesitation is also the couple trying to push back on trying to answer that question right away. I think sometimes they do have a date, a probable date in mind. But they, they, they want to sometimes just hold on for a little longer, this wonderful space of joy where all they know is that they are for one another for life. Because as soon as they have to answer publicly the date question, they're going to be sent down this track, this path filled with so many good but necessary considerations. Save the dates, locations, backup rain plans, flowers, bridesmaids, groomsmen, food, drink, eating, um, music, what to wear, registry, thank yous. We could go on and on because that just scrapes the list of, of really the massive amount of decision and detail that go into so many weddings of our day and time. It's an observation I know I've underscored in other sermons, but each time we get to this month of June and and the many accompanying weddings, it always becomes clear to me again that we as a society have, have a way of taking one of life's most beautiful and joyful gifts and at times letting well-intentioned details and expectations almost bury that most central and truly most beautiful aspect, which is the fact that two people are making a covenant within the covenant of God. What is meant for great joy can be the same thing that becomes cause for great burden. That really is the irony that is at the heart of our passage from Mark chapter 2. For the Sabbath is most certainly to be a day of joy. One ancient Jewish tradition involves Jewish fathers giving their children a spoonful of honey at a time when sugar was not everywhere, but a spoonful of honey on the Sabbath so as to teach them at a very young age the most basic thing about the Sabbath is not even what you can put into words, but that your sensory experience is one of sweetness. It is a delight. It is a unique joy given from God. Children start before they can form words about the Sabbath knowing it is somehow a delight. Even more poignant is the fact that Jewish people have long considered the Sabbath the bride of the week. The day is, is one that, that, that you are to anticipate eagerly and then, and then delight in with a joy that is akin to that of a wedding. And, and much like with weddings, rules and expectations grew up around the Sabbath that were meant to guard and keep the Sabbath, that it might remain a special, holy, sacred, joyful day on which the work ceased. The rules were meant to help keep the Sabbath the Sabbath. In Jesus' time, there were literally hundreds of rules for Sabbath-keeping, well-intentioned. Here are just a few. No shaving work. No spitting on the ground, lest that disturb the soil, and that was considered a form of plowing work. 
If an ox fell in the ditch, you could not help the ox out until the next day. If a flea was biting you, you could not swat the flea, lest you be caught hunting on the Sabbath, or worse, killing on the Sabbath. Let it suck away. Eggs laid on the Sabbath. Avoid them. Why? They were byproducts of hens who had been working on the Sabbath. Letter writing, here's the wording. He who writes two letters with his right and his left hand is guilty. He even who should in forgetfulness write two letters is guilty. Also, he who writes on two walls which form an angle or on two tablets of his account books so that they can be read together is guilty. Certainly no harvesting to be done on the Sabbath. I mean, that's work. And so these disciples, they're walking along with Jesus. They're picking the heads of grain, harvesting. Well, that's work on a day of rest. And the religious leaders, the, the, the Pharisees, they, 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 they pounce on this, springing from, again, those, at one point, well-intended guardrails. Aha, look, they're doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. <clears throat> First part of Jesus' response is, is to tell a story. It's maybe a lesser-known story from 1 Samuel 21, where David and his companions, they're hungry, they're in need of food, they enter the house of God, and, and they are given the unlawful, off-limits food that only the priests were allowed to eat. And, and Jesus wants to remind them of this most basic, basic ethic that, that you know, human need is more important than any sort of rule or law. And then Jesus takes it one step further. He says, you know, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. And it's as if with one fell swoop, Jesus clears back all these hundreds of laws that have been erected to protect the Sabbath, but in some ways had fallen on top of the Sabbath, and no one could even see what it was anymore. And so he just sort of clears them all out of the way and says, look, look again at the essence of the Sabbath, apart from all the rules and regulations. It is not made so that humans are trying to serve it, trying to live up to it, try to keep it, are burdened by it, are fearful of messing up, screwing it up, not doing it right or right enough. It is a gift for humankind. Isaiah 58 actually declares that the Sabbath is to be a delight. It is a day of cessation from work, and and next week we'll talk more about the work aspect, but also a proactive delighting in God, a proactive delighting in God's creation, in the gifts of God, much as God ceased on the seventh day, but also delights in God's own creation. So too, we are given this regular cessation that we might delight Psalm 92, which Christopher read a portion of today. Psalm 92, it's the only psalm in the Bible that explicitly states at at the header level that it is a psalm for the Sabbath. It has been read in worship century upon century. And those opening lines, they burst with right joyous praise and thanks. It is good to praise the Lord and, and make music to your name. You make me glad by your deeds. I sing for joy at the work of what your hands have done. When Sabbath comes around, there is music. There is this unique stretch of space for an encounter with God, really regardless of the circumstances, even assuming the very real circumstances that we all have as we enter this space. And yet we encounter the God who is the one faithful to walk with us in every valley, 
More, we encounter the God in in this unique space who has overcome the valley, is in fact more powerful than every measure of sin and even death. And then the God we encounter is not only the one who has conquered death, but is actively, even now, bringing about a new creation right in the midst of darkness. A true Sabbath is the space of joy where we are given unto slow and attend and notice, quote, what your hands have done, the psalmist says. Now that may come through Prayer or song or art or music, feasting, time spent in creation. No matter what, a Sabbath is somehow, amid all the hurt, the pain, the confusion, the evil, it is however imperfectly somehow a taste of honey at essence, a bride, a delight, a foretaste of what God will one day make of the whole world. It is most certainly a gift, not a burden. But as we have said these past two weeks, <laughs> who has time for that kind of day? I mean, well, maybe once in a while, here and there. But regularly, weekly, I mean, maybe it sounds nice or, or, or joyful, but, but just realistically, who has the time? I've answered that question two weeks in a row from different angles. I offer a third angle today in light of a recent essay I came across 1969, the Harvard theologian Harvey Cox published a book called Feast of Fools in which he explores his observation that that so much of the United States had become, quote, a success and money-oriented society. Day after day, it seemed mostly about productivity, not wasting time, certainly not losing time or letting time sit idle. It was a day, to his mind, far too much caught up And making the market move upward. And the barometer for good news was always directly related to the market. Not a joy in all circumstances, but very much an anxious happiness contingent on an unpredictable thing. He noticed day in and day out uh, the way that, that, that people were caught up in showing forth signals of their success. Whether by their life choices or their possessions or their schooling and so Cox, he notes this, this constant productivity, this keeping up of appearances. It, it, it seems to create a, a people who are, well, they're living, but, but they're dead. They, they have everything, or at least are fairly well situated by the standards of human history. But they, well, he notes they seem to lack a soul. It is the bland leading the bland, as, as he puts it at one memorable point. And this deeply concerns Cox. And so he posits a fascinating forward in the way forward in, in his book in 1969. Uh, and given that some of the concerns he raised remain very real things for us today, I think his insights hold relevant for 2018. One sentence captures it well. In a success and money-oriented society, we need a rebirth of unapologetically unproductive festivity and expressive celebration. In a success and money-oriented society, we need a rebirth of unapologetically unproductive festivity and expressive celebration. Now, Cox, he does not use the word. He's not interested in explicating necessarily the Sabbath per se. He's got some ideas. But he's putting forth a fairly ancient idea. He is, in essence, arguing for something akin to a Sabbath. It's not just a really good idea, a nice thing, if you can sort of 
find the time. Rather, in its full measure of unproductivity and joy and celebration, he names it as a most urgent task for the soul of a people. The Sabbath was made for humankind. It is a gift. And his sentiment is it is actually, in fact, an urgent gift. And so to the person who says... Who has time for a Sabbath? Cox's argument essentially replies, how can one not have time for the Sabbath? Which is to say, the God who is behind, of course, the Sabbath. Now I get right away, having talked to so many of you over the years and and even this summer, um, we have impossible schedules and expectations. Our workplace does. It requires us to be on, or at least on call, seven days a week. We have to work seven days to honestly make ends meet. We are parents. We don't stop parenting. We are children, and our parents are aging, and we don't stop caring. And, and, and so, so maybe right now, 24 consecutive hours, just, it just isn't going to happen. And I think for some of us, that starts to weigh on us a little bit. And I think we have to be careful right there. Because right there is the beginning of the kind of thinking that makes the Sabbath a burden. I can't live up to the Sabbath. I can't find the time to do this. I, I, it's, apparently it's essential. I can't even do it. I'm already buried. Burden. What amount of time can you begin receiving rest- weekly that you might receive and taste and see and delight in this most ancient, urgent gift through which we encounter the living God. I mean, what, what part of a day is there? Or, or maybe the day has to shift a bit from week to week. What kind of help would you need to even open the space to receive the joyful gift? Rather than worrying about keeping a perfect Sabbath, as if any of us can keep a perfect Sabbath, look at the Pharisees who nailed the 24 hours but totally missed it. Rather than worry about keeping some kind of perfect Sabbath, where can we just step forward in faith and start to receive the joyful gift? In particular, receive this renewed awareness and delight in God's presence, in the gift of of God's creation, as we talked a lot about two weeks ago. Where can we start and maybe find precisely in some of our unproductivity, our soul, that animated, beautiful person God has made us to be in and for and among this world. As I mentioned this last week, if if you need practical ideas of, of how the Sabbath might be received, you know, after the service, go out to the hallway outside the social room, take one of the handouts, which has a bunch of bullet point ideas, look at the wonderful display that uh, Lewis and Libby Rosebro put together for the summer. For now, though, let me, in this moment in time, just give you one practical example of, of how one family lives out just the beginning portion of a Sabbath day in our time. It's hardly the end-all, be-all example. It's hardly the best example for every person in this room since our situations and, and family lives are different. But I share it because I think you, you can take at least some ideas from the model and because I think it's a model that really does show a great appreciation that, that joy sits at the heart of the day because joy sits at the heart of our God who is encountered. The example comes actually from a pastor whose, whose work I sometimes follow, A.J. Swoboda. He serves a church in church, uh, Portland, Oregon. He, his wife, and three children uh, celebrate the Sabbath every Tuesday evening 
to Wednesday evening. First step, they prepare for the Sabbath before Tuesday arrives. He actually doesn't go into a whole lot of detail precisely what they do. But let me underscore this for just a moment. Think, think of any other aspect of, of living into our faith. Hospitality. Practicing hospitality, there, there is a preparatory aspect for the guests. Giving generously in, in, a, in a regular, disciplined manner. My goodness, when we look over our, our income, our budget, we make a plan for generosity. We prepare. Serving the poor, we prepare meals or clothing or an advocacy plan. Parenting, foster parenting, my goodness, there is preparation. Sabbath, you don't just go 60 miles an hour and then stop. Theologian Dan Allender puts it this way in his book, Sabbath. You know, joy does not just happen, nor is it served up on demand. Much as the notion that creativity is 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration. So Sabbath joy is, is part mysterious surprise preceded by much planning and preparation. What does it look like for us to prepare to receive the gift of Sabbath space and the presence of God? What, what does it look like to prepare for that to truly be opened unto us? They prepare. Now Tuesday evening, the family comes together. They, they, they sing a short song called Shabbat Shalom, Sabbath Peace. It's this really short song, again, where, where each member of the family is named Shabbat Shalom 2. Shabbat Shalom 2. Each member of the family receives a blessing. Sometimes they then take time to go around and bless one another in a specific way. The family apparently owns six chickens. Often they make it into the Shabbat Shalom song. Then they eat a big meal together, feast. They read books together. They go to bed. In the morning, they have two rules. Nobody makes their bed. And second, pancakes. They make these big, yummy, syrupy pancakes for breakfast. In terms of what then the rest of the day looks like, in terms of activities, non-activities, what it is to open themselves to delight in God's presence, uh, in the gift of God's creation out there, and, and some of the gifts God has given them, they use this set of questions to help them discern. Is the activity in question life-giving or is it life-taking? That is, does it bring us life, rest, hope, and wholeness? Or does that activity drain us, pour us out, stress us, load us down? Now, now we may push back on that question. There are other ways of, of framing it. I could see where those questions have limits, especially if you're sort of addicted to your work, and you're sure that's just the only thing that can give you wholeness. Again, next week we'll look more at Sabbath and work. But, but I am impressed by this very concrete, intentional way that this family looks to receive the gift of the Sabbath. So it's truly not a burden, but in fact, there, there is a joy to be known. It is the joy of the Lord. It is the joy of the gift of a family and God's creation and this space and time. Though, of course, I think that raises at least one final question for us this morning, and, and that is, well, how does one know if it happened? I mean, what's the measure of joy? Let's admit off the bat, joy is a lofty thing. No simple sentence definition can possibly suffice. Joy slips always beyond the limits of language. We can return one final time to Mark 2. 
And let's note again the story that Jesus responded to the Pharisees with. Jesus is not just telling a story from the Bible to proof text his point. He's actually implying something else very important for those who have ears to hear. The story Jesus tells features one of the greatest figures in Jewish history and imagination, David. And where this particular story falls in the life of David is when David, yes, has been anointed and chosen by God as king, but... He is not yet visibly installed as king. Saul, you may remember, is is still king in 1 Samuel 21. And Jesus is very much making a direct comparison with himself and his disciples and David and his companions. And for those who have ears ears to hear, Jesus is saying that he himself is an anointed king. Though it's not yet entirely visible, not yet entirely known to the world. It's, it's as if he's telling this short story from the life of, the, of, of David. And Jesus is then giving the Pharisees a chance to notice something besides all the rules they so readily notice. Can you see the true king in your midst, one after David? Can, Do you notice the heartbeat of the Sabbath is right here in your midst? The gift of the Sabbath, the essence of the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath is right here. Or are all of your well-intentioned rules actually keeping you from seeing the joy right in front of you? If in all of our wedding planning... Preparation. We are so caught up in, in all of the good things and all the burdens we just keep trying to keep up with that we, we've lost any sight of where Jesus is working or showing up or leading or blessing or gracing. Or if in our hospitality for one another, we are, we are so busy just trying to get all the details right, meet their expectations, our expectations, ensure that it all comes together just so, and we just aren't even seeing Jesus who is right there, perhaps even in our guests. If in all of our preparations to serve and care for the needy, the hurting, the hungry, we are so caught up in the problems, the challenges, the preparations, never enough, and don't see Jesus in our midst leading, humbling, speaking. If with the church, we get so caught up in our orderliness and the details and the processes and doing right and not doing wrong, that, that we've, we've stopped seeing Jesus in our midst. And certainly it is the same for the Sabbath. If all of our rules and expectations have, like the Pharisees, in fact, kept us from seeing Jesus, who's right there, then yes, we may be doing much hard work and good work, but in fact, missing the essence joy. And as the measure of joy is the presence of Jesus, a living encounter with Jesus is the measure of joy in whatever conduit that happens through. And as with the Pharisees, Jesus rarely shouts his presence. It's more of a those who have ears to hear begin to notice what is in fact right in front of them. 
And that kind of encounter can't always be put perfectly into words. But, but one way you know you have heard from Jesus, Jesus is moving, convicting, humbling, encouraging, leading, is that you eventually want to join with the psalmist at some level. And with your being and your voice, say, I sing for joy at the, what the work of your hand has done. May we know this week, and may we know every week, the gift of unproductive festivity. And encounter time and again the Lord of the Sabbath, who is in our midst and who is making all things new. Amen.